I would say out of the frying pan and into the fire, but given yeah. that we're talking about 10 degrees below zero, I'm not sure that is the correct analogy. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have a couple of RAF guys. So our two individuals are, at the time, Acting Wing Commander Roland Robert Stanford Tuck, DSO, DFC in two bars. And separately, Flight Lieutenant Spiniev Kostrinsky, who, whilst in a different squadron, these two, as we will see, come together for their escape attempt. Now... Basically, most of the information we have here comes from Bob Stanford Tuck's report, but I'll cover the shoot down of both of them, how they come together, I think, and then we can we can take it from there, because they're obviously very intertwined for several years, these guys. Mm-hmm. Let's start with Stanford Tuck. So most people who have researched all Air Force history would have come across Bob Stanford Tuck. He was a incredibly well-known character in the Royal Air Force, particularly during the Battle of Britain, but also later on after the war because he did an awful lot of documentaries with Douglas Bader and he was part of the Battle of Britain film as consultant. So he's always been seen as one of the faces of the few from the Battle of Britain, but he actually had quite a career before he joined the Royal Air Force. So he was born in Catford and he went to St Dunstan's College. Now, information for later on, he had a Russian nanny so he did actually have a smattering of Russian, okay. which will prove useful later on. But interestingly, he first joined up when he went to the Merchant Navy as a sea cadet, age 16. Okay. And it wasn't until 1935 when he actually chose to join the Royal Air Force. Now, trained as a pilot, first joined 65 Squadron flying Gloucester Gladiators, which are these, I suppose, slightly heavy biplanes. They look very much like everything from the First World War, but they had great big engines in the front and mostly made of tin, so they carried a bit more meat with them. As he found out, actually, because he was involved with the mid-air collision over East Sussex in January 1938, which he managed to survive. So it's not the first time that he actually had to take to parachute during his career, shall we say. But yes, he jumped out of that particular aeroplane and carried on in the Royal Air Force, shall we say. May 1940, he was posted to 92 Squadron, starting to fly Spitfires. That was at Croydon. Also relevant because the commanding officer at the time was a certain Roger Bushell, also based at Croydon. And on the 23rd of May, which was the first combat engagement of 92 Squadron, that's the one in which Roger was shot down on, on his first mission, Tuck on that particular mission got three fighters and the following day, two bombers. Now, he had obviously seen that Bushel had been shot down, so he assumed command of 92 Squadron at that point as one of the senior members. For that action on that first day, that's what got him his DFC. Okay. The first time, which was awarded on uh, June the 11th from King George the 6th. And part of the citation says, for great dash and gallantry. Excellent. Excellent. Now, he continued with his combat successes through July and August 1940, although he was shot down himself on the 18th of August over Tunbridge Wells. So he had to take to parachute again for the second time in his life. And then on the 25th of August, he also got shot down, but he stayed with the aeroplane and managed to crash land it in the field in Kent with the engine stopped. 
So quite an active early part of the Battle of Britain, shall we say. He was then promoted to squadron leader on the 11th of September and he started flying Hawker Hurricanes with 257 Squadron and he then went on to obtain another four more victories by the end of the Battle of Britain. That earned him a bar to his DFC, which he was awarded on the 25th of October and then he transferred into ground attack roles and also trying to intercept intruders that were coming across. In January 1941, he was he was awarded the DSO for, again within the citation, commanding with great success his squadrons. As we see, because in March 1941, he got his second bar to his DFC for conspicuous gallantry and initiative in searching for and attacking enemy raiders, often in adverse weather. Now, there's a bit of a tragic story behind that as well, because there is actually a case of him attacking a bomber near Cardiff at long range, and he managed to spook this bomber into dropping its bombs early, so instead of in the city, out in open fields, just so happens that one of those bombs fell near an army training camp and it killed one individual. That one individual was actually Tuck's sister's husband. So he inadvertently That's... shot down an aeroplane that, in dropping its bombs, killed his brother-in-law. So there is an element of tragedy to that. He was to be shot down again. So Tuck was shot down in June 1941, this time into the Channel. He went for a swim for a little bit and he ends up being rescued by a coal barge which happened to be taking going back to the UK so uh, he managed to come home from that but then after a very brief period of being sent to America for a little bit of testing of Lend-Lease aircraft he ended up being sent to RAF Duxford as an acting wing commander as part of fighter sweeps and then that continued he was posted down to RAF Biggin Hill in Kent to continue those sweeps so he ended up with quite an impressive score by the time he was shot down so it effectively totals around 44 aircraft Okay. during those first couple of years of the war. He had 27 confirmed destroyed, plus he had two shared destroyed aeroplanes, one unconfirmed destroyed, and one shared unconfirmed destroyed, six possibly destroyed, six damaged, and several other shares. So 44 different enemy aircraft put out of action to one extent or the other in the first two years of the war. And what was the requirement to be an ace? Five. Five. Which he achieved on his second trip, operational trip, back in May of 1940 shooting down the three when Roger was shot down and two bombers the following day. So he was an ace on the second day of operations. And he got a further 39 after that. In one shape or another, yeah. yeah. So so we're talking about a legend here. This is why most people have heard of him, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so certainly was. So turning to the way that Bob ended up in occupied territory, we spin forward to the 28th of January 1942. So we know he's operating out of Biggin Hill on what were known as rhubarb missions. Now we covered this back in series three. Effectively, a, a rhubarb mission was a low-level fighter sweep where you nipped in across the coast, find some targets, shoot up the targets, get back out again. So that's what he was engaged upon. So to read from his report, he says, I took off from Biggin Hill in a Spitfire aircraft at 15.45 hours on the 28th of January 1942 on a rhubarb. After I'd attacked a train near Boulogne, the aircraft was hit by light flak. The engine stopped immediately and I crash landed. The aircraft was surrounded by Germans and I was captured at once. Now I have seen various reports. There's a lot of stipulation about things, about allegedly cannon shells going down gun barrels and it was all celebrating and everything else. Effectively, he was shooting up some things on the ground, low level, fairly fast, hit, knocks the engine out, he hasn't got very much time, he pancakes it into a field, and all the people he's just been shooting up come and get him. So he doesn't really have a chance to evade. And he sums it up very, very succinctly in, what, six lines? And that's including the map references where he was shot down. So yes. he doesn't mess about as far as this goes. Now, Spiniev 
Krasinski, who would later be his partner in crime for this. Now, he had a very different experience with being shot down, as we will see if I go to his report now. Now, Kostrinsky, sadly, as we often have with some of the Polish individuals that we try and look up, we don't actually have a huge amount of information on his early career. We effectively have that he was born on the 18th of September 1911 in Moscow, as it so happens. Put him as 31 when he was shot down, which is kind of one of the older guys in fighter command. But he'd been in the Polish Air Force. His address is the Polish legation in London and that uh, he'd basically been in RAF service since, since February 1940. So very little, sadly, on him. But he goes into a lot more on his report. Now, he was flying with 303 Squadron out of RAF Northolt, and that's a very well-known Polish fighter squadron. And his reports <laughs> carries a reasonable amount of detail. It was a bit unfortunate, this one, for him. He says, I took off from Northolt in a Spitfire aircraft at 1000 hours on the 4th of April 1942. My squadron was attacked by five Fokker Wolf aircraft near saint Omar, and I was shot down, crash landing in a field near saint Omar at about 11.30 hours, and was thrown clear of the aircraft. Now, that's quite a crash landing if the impact of it, rather than sliding along on the belly, actually gets to the point that it rips the aeroplane open and throws you from it. Mm -hmm. So, not to be unexpected, he was quite badly injured. As he says, my spine was fractured and my knees were paralysed. I was able to walk stiff-legged to a nearby canal where I hid my parachute, harness, and May West. Now He's got guts. He's got guts and partial paralysis and still manages to walk away from mm. the wreckage. But he goes on even more. He says, I walked about 300 yards to a small wood where I hid until about 2,200 hours. I left my battle dress blouse in the wood and went to a farmhouse where I hid in a barn until the morning of the 5th of April. About 1100 hours on that day, I spoke to a girl who worked at the farm and discovered that she was Polish. She gave me food and drink and she told me to go to another house as a search of the district was being carried out by the Germans. I filled a sack with straw and carried it on my shoulders and began walking across country. Now, this is good because it would make him look like a farm labourer, mm -hmm. but he also still has paralysed knees and a fractured spine and he's now loading himself up with a sack of straw. On the way, I met a Frenchman and asked him for help. He refused to do so, but directed me to a farm where a Polish family lived. I did not trust this man, so I made a detour and watched him. Soon afterwards, a German patrol came along and spoke to this Frenchman, and he pointed in the direction he had sent me. Quite right not to trust him then. Mm. I wonder what gave him that impression initially. I then walked in the opposite direction and approached a small cottage where I was given a civilian cap and jacket. I then walked cross-country, intending to get to Bethune, where a Polish colony was located. Towards evening, I called it a farm where I fainted. Well, I can imagine out of pain, probably dehydration and lack of nourishment now. When regaining consciousness, two hours later, they gave me drink, but refused to shelter me. I then left the farm and walked about two kilometres to another farm where the family gave me food and shelter in a barn. So he now has at least found some area to rest. Mm -hmm. I remained there until about noon on the 6th of April when the owner of the farm told me I must leave. I left the farm at the 1600 hours and I hid in a cemetery near a church. Sometimes later, I fainted and was found by the priest who agreed to help me. He took me to a house and put me inside. I discovered that four German army officers were awaiting me and the priest was a German. At 23.30 hours, I was taken by ambulance to Santa Mar Hospital. So effectively, after two days of walking around with a fractured spine and paralysed knees and, and very little nutrition, he's finally been taken to hospital, but he is sadly captured. So quite a different experience to Stanford Tuck. 
So Krzyzynski basically spent about a month and a half in hospital. So he was in Centimar Hospital from the 6th of April to the 25th of May. And then he transferred to another hospital where he was until the middle of June. And again, another hospital where he was until the 25th of August, 1942. Then he goes on to Spandenburg. Interestingly, he doesn't seem to go through Dulag Luff, so I imagine he's interrogated. He doesn't mention anything about it in his reports, but I imagine he would have been interrogated whilst in one of those three hospitals. But he eventually arrives in Spandenburg on the 26th of August 1942. Now, interestingly, Tuck had been through Spandenburg as well. Now, his report being slightly more to the point, he took more traditional routes. So we know he had been captured and he was sent to Dulag Luft, where he was for about two weeks, which was the typical length of time that you'd be there mm-hmm. to be questioned. And then he went straight to Spandenburg on the 12th of February, where he remained until April 1942. But they didn't overlap at Spangenberg. No, so they didn't overlap at Spandenburg, but they did in the next camp. So Tuck was sent on to Stalag Luft 3 on the 15th of April 1942, and Kostrzynski was also sent to Stalag Luft 3, arriving on the 9th of January 1943. And that's where they met. And that's where they met. Excellent. So as you said, the vast majority of the information that we have from these two escape reports does come from Stanford Tuck. And therefore, probably more of the focus is around his escape efforts. In fact, Kostrzynski, in his report, does say that effectively refer to Stanford Tuck's report. Yes, it it quite literally says, my efforts are as related by Stanford Tuck. So there will be quite a lot more focus on Stanford Tuck, but that's because that's where the source information is coming from. Because we've now got the two strands come together in the same camp, style with three, around about January 1943. They both start to overlap from there. However, before January 43, so from April 42 until January 43, Stanford Tuck is in style with three and does make some escape attempts of his own in that time. So I'm just going to read out his description of of his first couple of attempts. So from April until December 1942 he worked on the construction of a couple of tunnels in the east compound of Stalwuth 3 however they seem not to have been successful because fairly quickly in March 1943 he says that with flight lieutenants Harsh, Marshall and Floody he inspected all of the sewerage in the compound with a view to tunnelling through one of the drains. However this was to prove impractical. Nonetheless three sites for tunnels were selected on the 15th of April and work was commenced on the traps covering the entrances. These were completed by the 5th of May and work on the tunnel proceeded under my supervision in collaboration with squadron leader Bushel. So his former commanding officer he has now teamed up with again and he is now super supervising the construction of these tunnels. On the 25th of July, it was decided to concentrate all the efforts on one of the three tunnels which headed west. This tunnel was discovered by a ferret during roll call on the 8th of September when it was 240 feet long and beyond the perimeter fence. The tunnel was constructed at a depth of 23 feet below the surface. From then until the 15th of September, work continued at good speed on one of the other tunnels which ran north from the compound. On the 15th of September, it was decided to cease work for a time owing to the activities of the German Abwehr Department following the discovery of the other tunnel. At this stage, the tunnel was 110 feet long. So essentially, because the other tunnel has been found and they're doing three concurrently, they've shut one down because the other one's been found and just lying low. Germans are sniffing around far too much for their comfort and therefore time to be a bit quieter. And these are substantial tunnels. Yes, yeah, I mean... Length and depth, that's a big engineering task. Indeed, yes, exactly. He then states that on the 12th of January 1944, work recommenced on the tunnel that has been shut down and continued until 24th of March when the tunnel was broken. By this stage, it was 330 feet in length and had been constructed 24 feet below the surface. 
About 70 officers escaped during this night and it was learned subsequently that 50 had been shot. I was moved to Bellaria compound shortly before the completion of this tunnel. So what we have here in fairly stark but also detailed in some aspects yes is a first-hand account of the great escape from someone who was very deeply involved but did not take part in it yes and we we know well i mean i've come across research for there was a big shake-up germans knew that something was going on but couldn't pin down what it was and literally a couple of weeks before the main escape attempt there was a big shuffle around in the camp that's why most of the americans got moved out into a different compound but a number of the british officers that they thought might be up to something Mm -hmm. were also moved on to try and disrupt it and obviously tuck was one of them exactly although to everyone's surprise bushel was not Correct. And to give an idea of just how close a shave or a narrow escape, pun intended, this was, it was in early March 1944 that they were moved. And of course the tunnel broke on the 24th of March. So we're talking about a matter of a couple of weeks that they narrowly avoided taking part in the Great Escape. Hmm. I'm sure at the time it wasn't seen as a particularly good move for them, but I'm sure in the aftermath they had other thoughts on that front. However, what this does show us is that Stanford Talk was very, very deeply involved in what became the Great Escape, the construction of the tunnels. He was heavily involved in the supervision of this. And in this, and this is quite a rarity in an escape report like this, to have someone who was able to describe the situation on the ground. Because of course only three of the Great Escapers got back, and of those who were also involved but didn't escape, it's rare for them to have gone on and escaped. Yes. And therefore produced their report like this. So this is an incredibly rare piece of insight into the background that took place, and therefore fascinating. Absolutely. So that was his second escape attempt, but even while this was ongoing, he was to make other attempts, almost on the periphery, just to keep the Germans entertained. <laughs> keep while them on they their were, toes. Exactly. <laughs> didn't want to let them rest on their laurels while they were focusing most of their efforts on these three major tunnels. Because in early May 1943, he and squadron leader Roger Bushel planned another mass escape from the North Compound, which was not the Great Escape, from Stahlwolf 3. So the scheme was that a single louse would be found in the camp and therefore genuine de-lousing parties would need to pass out of the gate of the north compound and along the main road outside the camp to the Vorlager, situated between the east and centre compounds. Now these de-lousing parties were being sent out mm. on the basis of finding a single louse. Yes. So I'm, I'm, in my head I have this image of thousands of prisoners of war being sent off to just find a single louse yes. in order to enable this escape effort. So these parties were to be escorted by German guards and the, t- the intention was that an apparent delousing party would be accompanied by imposter Germans and would pass through the gates of the North Compound during the Germans' lunch interval. We hope to arrange to have genuine delousing parties take place in the morning of the selected day and that the German Lager officer would say that no more delousing parties would leave the compound until about 2.30 in the afternoon. So in effect they were trying to add in a fake third party in the middle of the day in order to confuse them while they're off having their lunch. I think it's brilliant. It's superb. It's absolutely superb. It was also planned that a decoy party of senior officers would follow almost immediately behind the main escape party in order to attract the attention of the guards in the sentry tower near the gate, who had a clear view of the main party on the journey between the two compounds. This was to enable the main party to escape into the woods before reaching the entrance to the Vorlager of the east and centre compounds. 
And the party of these senior officers would then be a genuine escape party if conditions allowed. But its primary purpose was to maintain the focus of the sentry guard in the tower away from the first group that were making their way out so that they weren't looking at the party at the moment that they left the road and entered the the wood next to the compound. Yeah, I think it's great. It's superb. Yeah. So on the 12th of June 1943, just after the German guard on the gate had changed at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the main party of escapers started to assemble at the main gate of the North Compound, accompanied by two imposter German guards, who were made up of one Belgian and one Dutch pilot each, because both of them were fluent German speakers and equipped with the necessary forward passes and German uniforms made in the camp in order to sufficiently pass. Muster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In addition to these two, the party consisted of 27 officers picked by Roger Bushel and myself for certain escaping qualities which they possessed. They wore civilian clothes made in the camp under their uniforms and greatcoats, and this party included Flight Lieutenant Stower, Flight Lieutenant Canton, Flight Officer McDaniels, and Flight Officer Skinner of the Eagle Squadron. So we have an American in there as well. Yep. Now, Stanford Tuck does say he can't remember the names of the others, but he, he was able to add some detail of some of those who were in the decoy party which followed, which was made up of the senior officers, and among these were Colonel Goodrich, Lieutenant Colonel Clark, Squadron Leader Jennings, and Flight Lieutenant Kostrinsky. Wow. So this is the first time we see Stanford Tuck and Kostrinsky overlapping in an actual escape attempt. Hmm. And this second party were to be led by another Dutch Air Force officer who was disguised as a German Luftwaffe Unteroffizier. And this was to be Flight Lieutenant van der Stock. Now van der Stock, of course, would go on to take part in the Great Escape and was one of the three who made it back. Yes. So van der Stock was in possession of forged papers as well, giving him authority to take the party of senior officers to the Commandant for an interview with the Commandant. So although these were a decoy party, theoretically for a party that was going out to be deloused, their cover story was not to be deloused. Yes. Which actually is even smarter. Yes. The fact that they were going in the same direction roughly, but for an entirely different reason, it again keeps the mind focused away from the party that's just left. So the main party, the first party of escapers moved off through the double gate of the north compound, having passed the sentry without incident, and turned right on the road outside the camp. The decoy party of senior officers now passed through the first gate of the compound, but due to the fact that the German sentry on the second gate did not recognise van der Stock personally as one of the guards, that group, which included Stanford Tuck, were kept between the two gates while he was taken to the guardroom a few yards away for questioning. I mean, that's always one of the risks, because these guys are trying to do this in the afternoon. Yes. Whereas officers walking fairly fast, waving about the right paperwork at you know night is not going to be as challenging as trying to do it in the daylight. Yes, where you're much clearer, although the context of trying to do it in the evening may have been less convincing. Yeah. So in the meantime, the first party had halted on the main road between the North Compound and the entrance to the Vorlager of the East Compound. After having done so, he observed that van der Stock had been taken to the guardroom and that five of the senior officers were between the two gates. He therefore marched the main party along a haulage road in the wood opposite to the camp between the gate to the North Compound and the entrance to the Vorlager. When the party was about 75 yards from the main road, it dispersed into the wood. So, in effect, the decoy party, the second party, have done their job, if only because it meant that all the focus was on them because of the suspicion raised around van der Stock and therefore they were able to disperse into the woods because no one was looking at them. Yeah. Van der Stock had previously discussed with Roger Bushel that in the event of a hit regarding his second party, the sentry in the tower overlooking the main road would, and in fact did, have his attention centred on the second party, thus enabling the main party to disperse. This confirms that this was part of Stanford Tuck and Bushel's plan. The whole point of this second party was to distract the guards. Yeah. 
So when Van der Stock had been taken into the guard room, the guard commander telephoned the German officers' mess, who immediately became suspicious as he was aware that no meeting of the senior officers and the commandant had been arranged. Therefore, several of his staff immediately came to the gate of the North Compound and their party was taken into the guard room and stripped. Before this took place, I was able to throw my false papers, etc., back into the compound, so it was therefore able to be reused. Hmm. So the German officer in charge, having now caught this party, was gloating over the fact that they'd been caught, and Stanford Tuck agreed with him when he stated that it was useless for any of us to attempt to escape. However, a few moments later, he was called to the telephone in the guardroom and informed that a large delousing party had just left the north compound but failed to arrive in the east compound. At that moment, the commandant arrived at the guard room and both he and the German officer in charge realised what had taken place, i.e. that my party had been a decoy for a much larger party which had previously gone through the gate. The two of them then lost their tempers and attached full responsibility to me and informed me that my days were numbered. Now, in any other camp, in any other context, I probably would have dismissed that threat. Hmm. But to be told that your days were numbered from Stalwood 3 holds a little bit more of a threat, even previous to the Great Escape. It was less of an empty threat than it might have been otherwise. Yeah. Therefore, Stanford Tuck and his party of six were taken to the cells in the Vorlager, where they were remaining for 10 days, while Stanford Tuck served a sentence of 14 days. Now, this is relatively short mm. for an escape attempt. Two weeks is a relatively short sentence in the cooler. Particularly because it was one that was effectively masterminding others getting out and getting away. So, you know, it could have had major ramifications. So it's not just a one attempt to jump in the back of a cart or something and make out. It's, it's quite a big escape. Mm. Now, at this stage, you may be reasonably wondering what happened to the original party. Now, he doesn't go into too much detail, but he does say, during the course of the next week or so, I learned that all members of the main party had been recaptured. Nonetheless, while they were all recaptured, this escape of nearly 30 officers caused considerable activity in the German security organisations throughout Germany, and details of the escape were broadcast over the German radio. So after this escape, in effect, Stanford Tuck and Kostrinsky were to become something of an escape partnership. So in December 1943, he and Kostrinsky were to attempt another escape from the North Compound at Stadluf 3. The scheme was to hide themselves in a horse-drawn cart which removed the rubbish from the compound and deposited it outside the camp area. The escape was planned by myself and stage managed by squadron leader Bushel. So again, it's not the first time we've seen escape attempts like this. And it doesn't mean it couldn't work. It's just uh, it's quite a common mode of escape. Yeah. Yeah. To try and hide away in a, in a cart like this. Yeah. Yeah. So on the appointed day, Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck, dressed in camp-made civilian clothes, hid in the cart and were covered by a wooden structure which had been made with the assistance of Flight Lieutenant Greenaway. This wooden structure was to be placed over them and would give them protection both from the rubbish that was piled on top but also from visual checks and, of course, bayonets if they were to be yeah. poked in around We've seen the, the films, haven't we, of yeah. the, uh, stick the stick the rifle with the bayonet in to see if anyone goes squeak. Exactly. And this would stop them, hopefully, getting being maimed. squeaked. Yes, being <laughs> squeaked. So they were able to get into the cart while the driver, a German civilian, had been taken away to the latrine to be given a woolen jersey by one of the orderlies engaged loading the cart, which had been arranged the previous day between the orderly and the German driver. Meanwhile, the other orderly quickly covered the wooden structure under which we were hidden with a little rubbish which he had prepared in the cart. And so by the time the driver and the other orderly had returned, they were completely concealed. The two orderlies then proceeded to load the cart with the rubbish whilst the driver stamped it down. And again, this would still provide some protection with the wooden structure over them. However, after some time, the wooden structure covering them was starting to collapse, despite the fact that they supported it with their hands and knees. So it must have been collapsing under the weight and possibly with additional effort of the stamping. Yeah. 
and eventually after a few moments it collapsed completely and crushed them against the bottom of the cart. It was obvious that they were going to be injured or suffocated and so they were compelled to shout to the orderlies to get them out. After a few seconds delay they did so by pulling up the sliding back of the cart. We then ran to the nearby barrack where we disposed of our civilian clothes. Now, of course, the point of effectively legging it to a nearby barrack is to avoid being caught in yes. the act of escaping. Yes. However, interestingly, the German civilian driver, when he realises that they got a clean getaway, did not report the incident, and subsequently he personally destroyed the remains of the wooden structure. Now, this is pretty similar to Lieutenant David James, who was yes. relying upon the guards not to report him being missing so that they didn't take the blame for the escape. That's right. Again, the driver's effectively doing the same thing. He's trying not to be blamed for an escape attempt and therefore he just just covers it up covers so it up refuses to report it yeah. so it seems to have been that there was a genuine psychological advantage for the escapers here that if they could do it in such a way that it wasn't to the guard or in this case the driver's advantage to report it they would just forget to report it completely and effectively cover up their escape for them that's good However, it proved impossible to repeat this method of escape as this was the only cart coming into the compound and the driver was too frightened to leave the cart at future occasions or to collaborate with them at all. Nonetheless, uh, Stanford Tux states that, in my opinion, the failure of this escape was my responsibility entirely in that I omitted to calculate the weight of the rubbish with the result that the wooden structure was too weak. So we stated earlier that Stanford Tuck was moved at the start of March from the main compound of Stalwood 3 to the Bellaria compound. Nonetheless, on the 27th of March, he was to assist someone else to get out only three days after the Great Escape had taken place. Mm -hmm. Now, although we now know with the hindsight of history that to escape three days after the Great Escape was to take your life into your own hands because there was an extremely high risk to your life, mm. they were not to know that because the murders were still to take place another week or so away. And then it took a couple of months after that in order for everyone to realise precisely what had happened. Yeah. Nonetheless, escaping on the 27th of March was highly dangerous because, of course, if they had been recaptured, they probably would have just been shuffled in and filtered into to the larger group. Yes. Because by this stage, the German hierarchy were extremely upset and emotional yes. about the entire thing. Yes. Now, the person that he helped escape, Flight Officer Maxwell Ellis did make it out. However, he was recaptured on the 28th of March and then taken to Gerlitz Prison, which is a notorious name for anyone familiar with the Great Escape history. And indeed, he states that he met a large number of the officers who had escaped from the north compound of Stalwood 3 and who were subsequently shot. So, obviously, by the time that he is writing this report, he is fully aware of what took place and the context within this escape was taking place. Despite the fact that Ellis returned to Bellaria and was able to give them a more in-depth and detailed report on precisely what happened at Gerlitz prison, and therefore there was a lot more knowledge and understanding about what took place around what became known as the Great Escape within the camp at this stage than might otherwise have been the case, because of course they're in a different compound, so it wasn't like they got the information firsthand from being in course, the original yeah. compound. Yeah. They still had quite a lot of knowledge of what had happened because Ellis had come back and reported back to them. Nonetheless, they still took the decision to try and make a further escape attempt. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I think it's a brave one because for many of those who were in Bellaria, and certainly for the case of Stanford Tuck, a lot of those who took part in the Great Escape and were murdered would have been close personal friends, possibly in the same room as them, mm. even shared a bunk bed 
So to then make a decision in June 44, while information was still filtering back on precisely what had happened, and certainly they knew that a lot of their mates had been murdered in cold blood by the Gestapo, to then make that decision to start a tunnel is an extremely brave one to take. Absolutely. So they started in June 44 and they were to continue until January 45, by which stage it was 54 feet long and had been constructed just four feet below the surface. So the entrance to this tunnel was in a very open position which necessitated slow work. When work ceased, the tunnel was just beyond the perimeter fence and to my knowledge it is still in existence as the entrance was concealed before we were evacuated. And so the only reason why this escape attempt was to cease was because they were ultimately evacuated from the camp in January 1945, in what would become known as the Long March. So when the possibility of being evacuated from Stalluth III first arose, Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck had discussed the chances of escaping at great length, and when they actually received the order, they were both fully prepared with the necessary escape equipment, so maps, compasses, money, etc. Mm-hmm. At 20 hundred hours on the evening of the 27th of January 1945, they were informed that the whole of the camp was being evacuated to an unknown destination in central Germany. They were told that they had half an hour in which to pack only what kit and food they could carry on their backs. So they weren't going to be able to carry much with them, purely what they were able to carry on their person. On their person, exactly. At 0700 hours the next morning on the 28th of January, with the temperature 10 degrees below zero, they were marched out of the camp, nearly 1300 strong. Every officer was issued with one Red Cross parcel as he was checked through the gate with the food we had saved throughout the past few weeks. The average officer had enough for one week, bearing in mind that we might have to march anything up to 40 kilometres a day. So I wanted to pick up on that because at the best of times, prisoners of war were at risk of slow starvation, even without having to march long distances every day. I mean, the Red Cross parcels only just staved off that slow starvation. Yes. Factor in long distance marching, the temperature, 10 degrees below zero, and the brutality of the guards as well. There's a reason why the long marches have become relatively famous, because there was an extremely high death rate from these as well. Indeed. So as much as the temptation to escape from one of these long marches would have been extremely high, the risk factor in it, given how worn down you would have been after only a couple of hours of this, Mm -hmm. was also extremely high. So at the end of that day, they had managed to march about 25 kilometres from Bellaria with only half an hour's rest for lunch, and already there were several officers who were feeling the effect of fatigue and cold. And they were to sleep in the storage barns of what appeared to be a large sugar beet factory. A strong cordon of German guards with Tommy guns and grenades were thrown around the factory and everybody was then allowed to fall out and choose his bed for the night. Now it was at this point that Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck were to look a little bit in more depth as to escape. Because he says, As I'd been rather busy on the march and had not had the opportunity further to discuss the matter of escape with Kostrinsky, however as soon as I started talking to him, I realised that he was not feeling too well. On asking him about this, he informed me that he had dysentery and was running a temperature and consequently felt very weak. In spite of this, his spirits were very high, and ultimately his views on escape were quite unchanged. I mean, that's incredible, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, we saw earlier that he had guts. He had a, there was a great deal of bravery about him and his willingness to make an evasion attempt before he was captured, despite having a fractured spine and two paralysed knees. Yes. Again, we're seeing the man with dysentery and the temperature, having just marched 25 kilometres through 10 degrees below zero weather, still willing to try and make an escape attempt. 
It's, it's amazing. Yeah. So they took the decision to explore around the factory to identify the possibilities of escape. However, because of the locations of the guards, it proved nearly impossible to escape from this place, and so they decided to not try and escape from this first factory. The next day, the weather was still very cold and snow was falling, and the whole column marched out to the yard of the factory for the next stage of their journey. The day's march took them a further 20 kilometres, where they were to stop again at a large barn in a farm on the outskirts of Grossalton. On the 30th of January, they were informed that they were going to spend the day and the following night on the farm and leave the following morning on the 31st of January. And once again, they spent the entirety of the day trying to make contacts with various civilians around the farm, trying to find a way to escape, but this proved unsuccessful. So despite being there for one day and two nights, they were unable to find someone who'd be willing to help them. So at 10 o'clock the next day, on the 31st of January, the whole column again left the farm. And at 1500 hours on the afternoon, they reached another large farm on the outskirts of Brownsdorf. Now this was to prove the hiding place that Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck had been looking for since the trip started. Because immediately on arrival, Kostrinsky made contact with a charming family of Russian workers who were willing to help us all they could. Now you mentioned earlier that Kostrinsky was born in Russia. Yes. We don't know why, we don't know the link there. No, we don't. However, you also mentioned that Stanford Tuck, through his Russian nanny... Had a smattering of Russian. Exactly. And so finding a helpful family of Russian workers who were willing to help them, for these two in particular, was a huge stroke of luck. Absolutely. These people all lived in a small room and were decent enough to accommodate Kostrinsky and myself and four other officers in the same room. So Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck spent all of the next day going through the final arrangements of their escape and concealment. The general plan was to conceal themselves on the farm and, and when all the prisoners left, to remain concealed as long as possible in the hope that the Russian advance would overtake us. Or if this was not possible, make our way through the German lines and so make contact with the Russians. Now, at the end of January 1945, this is not an outrageous expectation because the day that they left the camp was the day that the Russians liberated Auschwitz. And so the expectation that the Russian advance may actually catch them up only four days later, we're still not talking about a huge distance to be covered. Yeah. So on the 2nd of February, before most people were awake, we managed to make contact with Group Captain MacDonald and told him that Kostrinsky and myself would not be continuing the journey. He did not seem too keen on this, but when I explained the plan to him, it seemed to change his mind and he finished wishing us luck. I therefore returned to the room of the Russian family with where Kostrinsky and myself agreed that it was time to hide as the German guards were starting to get everyone ready to leave. So the day they were ultimately to make their escape, which is the 2nd of February, so about a week after they've initially left the camp, was also the final day of the Vistula Oder Offensive, where the Red Army was located. Okay. So they're only maybe a couple of hundred kilometres away by this stage. Okay. So with what small amount of kit they had, they made their way through the crowd and up onto a large pile of straw in the largest barn in the farmyard. They dug a hole into the straw close to the wall, about 10 feet deep, dropped down into this hole, and then one of the other officers covered them up and smoothed over the surface of the straw to make it look normal. Now, of course, 10 feet deep is quite far down, but it'd also be well out of bayonet range. It is, but you're also spending it with a man who's still got dysentery, so it's not going to be the most pleasant location. No. So about half an hour after they've concealed themselves, the noise and shouting outside, which they could just about hear, started to die down, and therefore they concluded that the group had all left. 
However, he states that it was the next stage that was to be the somewhat trying period of waiting because it wasn't until 7.30 that evening when two Russian boys were coming to collect them and would take them to a different hiding place in the stable where it would be easier for them to come and get food and drink. However, by this stage, Kostrinsky's dysentery had stopped and he was feeling a little better. So while he was still rather weak and looking pale, with bloodshot eyes, his spirits were higher and he was starting to feel a bit better. That's a relief. For, every, <laughs> for, 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 for everyone involved. For everyone involved, sharing a haystack yes. yes so having recovered some of their health they were also quite upbeat about the fact that the first part of their escape had been successful however after the main party left the farm a group of about eight ferrets with dogs continued to hang around to carry out an extensive search of the farm buildings that would make sense it would and on several occasions they actually walked over the straw that was covering them however with 10 feet of straw between them and the germans looking for them they were relatively safe and it was after this search that the civilians living on the farm also wandered around the straw looking for anything which the prisoners of war may have left behind. So at 7 o'clock that evening they crawled out of the straw and waited for the arrival of the two Russian boys who came half an hour later and gave the pre-arranged passwords of Are the wheels here in Russian? It works as a password. Mm, particularly if they all speak Russian. Yeah. They escorted us to a stable on the other side of the farm where we hid in the straw above the stable for about a week and lived on the food that we had with us. The two boys visited us each evening in order to bring water and the occasional scraps of bread or potatoes and also any news that they obtained about the advance of the Russian forces. The stable was visited regularly by German farm workers during the day so the result was that Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck had to be very still for many hours at a stretch. Consequently, they suffered greatly from the effects of the cold weather and rats were very troublesome so that one of them had to keep watch throughout each night. On the 9th of February, the two Russian boys took us to another farm building, a cowshed, as they learned that the stable was soon to be used by a German unit billeted in the village for the storage of their vehicles. So of course that was an extremely high risk of them being rediscovered if the Germans were going to use the stable they were in. Absolutely. Well, because they would have been looking for shelter. We're still talking 10 degrees below zero, aren't we, weather? Give or locally. take, yeah. Yeah, so they, they need to look after themselves too. So having been moved to a cow shed, they were to remain there until the 11th of February, when at 1,500 hours, the two Russian boys warned them that a column of French prisoners of war would be billeted for a night at the farm. They told us to be prepared to move for another hiding place at short notice. They then left us. At 1900 hours, about 3,000 French prisoners of war arrived at the farm and some of them eventually stumbled upon our hiding place. I told them who we were and asked them not to tell anyone about our presence. However, within a few moments, we realised that they could not remain where they were because more and more Frenchmen were just staring at them, basically, and therefore creating a great deal of interest. Yeah. As a result of that, German guards were moving around among the prisoners of war and so Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck picked up their kit and went out into the courtyard of the farm in order to basically hide amongst the large crowd. Yeah. It's actually quite a smart move. Yeah. If you've got 3,000 Frenchmen milling around, hide in plain sight. Yeah. Kostrinsky then obtained a jug and went to the farmhouse where he asked the mother of one of the Russian boys for water. She obviously immediately recognised him and decided to hide him. During this time, I'd waited nearby and this woman took us and hid us in the ham-smoking oven which was opposite the door of her room. She locked the door with a padlock saying that she and one of the other boys would return when it's quiet. The ham-smoking oven was four feet six inches in height and five feet long and three feet wide so that we could not lie down, stretched out or stand up straight. It was also unlighted and very cold due to the ventilation in the floor and roof. I would say out of the frying pan and into the fire, but given yeah. that we're talking about 10 degrees below zero, I'm not sure that is the correct analogy. No, I can't imagine it was the most pleasant of experiences. 
they were to remain in this oven for 36 hours. And it was during this period that Stanford Tuck considered that their morale reached this lowest level due to the cold, cramp and pitch darkness. As an indicator of this low morale, Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck discussed the possibility of approaching the German owner of the farm and telling them that if he would conceal us, he would make a favourable report of his conduct to the Russian forces when they arrived. Hmm. However, this plan was not adopted, as at 0600 hours on the 13th of February, the two Russian boys took us to a barn where we were concealed under another pile of straw. We were to stay there until about the 22nd of February when the Battle of Brownsdor took place. On the morning of the 21st of February, we heard gunfire in the near distance approaching from the east and northeast. From this, we gathered that the Russians were about 6 to 10 kilometres away from us. At this stage, we discussed whether we should make a dash for the Russian lines or remain where we were. We decided to stay put for another day. Mm -hmm. So having stayed put, on the morning of the 22nd of February, about 1000 hours, a German gun battery was set up beside the barn in which they were in and began firing towards the Russians in an easterly direction. The farm they were all in therefore came under heavy artillery fire from the Russians and at about 1200 hours the German battery evacuated westwards. The heavy firing around the farm ceased and from 1200 hours until 1500 hours we heard a considerable amount of small arms and machine gun fire being exchanged. There was then a temporary lull at 1500 hours where we observed a very ragged but well-armed Russian lieutenant standing in the middle of the farmyard. We ran out to him calling in Russian that we were British pilots who had escaped from the Germans. After his momentary suspicion he received us in the most affectionate manner. We were taken to the regimental commander who questioned us briefly and then sent us to the divisional commandant at HQ in Brownsdorf. So 20 days after making their initial escape, they have now made contact with the Russians. But what I find most impressive about this is they actually haven't moved a single yard away from the original farm. No. I have a lot of time for that, actually. Yeah. It's very efficient. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> actually makes the best use of their energy, their supplies, what resources they had by, as I say, effectively going nowhere. Yeah. And now we've seen in other escapes that even meeting up with the Russians has not always been the best outcome at the time. Were these guys treated any differently or did it actually go okay for them? It seemed to have gone a little bit better for them actually. So we were looking at Man, Easterbrook and Richards, all of whom made their way towards the Russian front and none of whom were treated particularly well, particularly Man and Easterbrook who escaped together and were treated particularly poorly. Yeah. By contrast, Kostrinsky and Stanford Tuck were taken to various places over the next couple of days and then eventually taken to Chestakova on the 9th of March 1945 and were to suffer nothing worse than severe cold. Okay. On arrival at Chestakova, we, we met a number of British army officers and men who were in the process of being repatriated after their liberation by the Russian forces. They then stayed there until the 13th of March, where they were entrained in a goods truck for Odessa, arriving in Lvov on the 17th of March, and remained there until the 20th of March, when they then continued on to Odessa. They arrived there on the 24th of March and were accommodated in a hospital until the 26th of March when they embarked on the Duchess of Richmond and sailed for the UK on the 27th of March. On arrival at Naples on the 3rd of April, the Stamford Duck disembarked and was sent by air to the UK, arriving there on the 4th of April 1945. However, Kostrinsky must have stayed on the ship because it states that he didn't arrive in the UK until the 17th of April, mm -hmm. so nearly two weeks later. And I guess that comes down to a, probably a matter of rank because as an acting wing commander or then made up as a wing commander, also being a native English speaker, been able to give a lot more relevant intelligence a lot quicker. So I also imagine given Stanford Tuck's fame and achievements, it may have been deemed necessary to get him back sooner in order to interrogate him, find out information from him. 
his achievements brought with him a certain status. Yeah, over and absolutely. above just his simple ranking. Absolutely. Which, I mean, obviously, we now know it's the end of the war, so I haven't got very much on Kostrinsky, but Tuck did continue to stay in the Royal Air Force. He retired in 1949, went on to be a test pilot, tested the Canberra, which is a great photographic reconnaissance aircraft. He ended up giving all of that up in 1953 to become a mushroom farmer, which he apparently did very successfully for around 20 years. Good. I he, love a mushroom. Yes. So, yes, yeah, so he was a very successful mushroom farmer. He did dip in and out of aviation again, so... So he was a consultant on the Battle of Britain film in mm-hmm. the 1960s. He is to be seen on a number of documentaries talking about the Battle of Britain. But he did fairly shy away from the limelight. He ended up effectively running the local golf club down in Sandwich in Kent. And he passed away in Sandwich in 1987. Because on the other hand, I've got virtually nothing for him after the war other than the fact that I've got a reference to him passing away in Poland just before his 85th birthday on the 9th of September 1996. If, as that suggests, that he ended up going back to Poland after the war, I think we can safely assume as to why we have no information on what happened to him. Yeah, it's very sad. So on that assumption, it's not unusual that we've seen certainly those who ended up behind the Iron Curtain after the war, that we have very little information. And a lot of the information we do have comes from not just Tuck's report, but the fact that he is Stanford Tuck, an extremely famous Battle of Britain pilot, an ace many times over. Poster boy, effectively, for the Royal Air Force. Exactly. Who spent three years in prison. Precisely that. Nonetheless, I think it is important that we remember that they escaped together. It wasn't just the famous name. Kostrensky was there too. That is one of the important things of covering this particular escape, is as much as it's fascinating to see a, a really interesting aspect of the life of an extremely famous individual, he clearly valued Kostrensky enough to team up with them on more than one occasion and make an escape with them, even at their lowest ebb when he's got dysentery and hiding in straw with them. To be so highly valued by someone who was highly valued himself speaks a lot to the character of Kostrensky, as well as Stanford Tuck. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at FYTWIO. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at FYTWIO podcast at gmail.com.